Hello, and welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This third series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of events, the sector of the market that's been the most hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd like to introduce Dina Lowry, who is the COO at Opus Agency. Dina is talking to us from Portland, so she's local to me. And hi, Dina. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure. So Dina and I know each other through... um, the Vistage Peer Group Mentoring um, Organization. And I've come to really value Dina's insight and wisdom. And it's been interesting to me to watch the the growth of Opus. So can you tell us a little bit about both your history and also the history of Opus Agency and where you are now? Sure, thank you. Um, So I, uh, February 26th, will be uh, my 25th anniversary at Open. Oh, wow. So uh, I'm a fossil. I'm a fossil there. Uh, and in and in the events agency um, world. Uh, so when I first started, we did uh, always have done corporate events. So we, we always have had corporate clients. Um, but when I started, they were quite small. So we worked with the channel, um, a lot of the channel partners, a lot of the channel groups inside of companies. And then... Um, as the agency grew and uh, we brought on talent, we started to take on additional aspects of the event. Instead of just the logistical planning, we started to take on the production of the event and the creative and the strategy. And then um, the agency, beginning in 2015, went on a huge growth spurt and we acquired seven additional agencies in about three years and uh and then welcome to 2020 (laughs) so we were on a rocket ship we were on a rocket ship uh at that time and those the the addition of of the um agencies really allowed us to expand our depth and breadth and so my role through the years uh i was a project manager and then i uh, moved on to owning my own clients and then i ran the events portion of the company for about a decade. And then I moved into this role of uh, COO about five five years ago. Excellent. So you talk about corporate events. Can you give us a bit more detail about what those are? Is it meetings? Is it trade shows? Is it launches? You know, what are these corporate events? It really spans the gamut, Graham. So, so we are working with both uh, internal corporate events. We are also working in, and those can be launches. Those can be um, uh, trade shows, third-party events. And then we also work with sales. So sales can be sales kickoffs, even the incentives for the top sales achievers. And then we even do stuff with HR. So any of the training stuff that needs to happen. So really, it, it it's the gamut of um, of going out and bringing constituents together. So it doesn't matter who those are. Uh, it, it can be internal employees. It can be your partner uh, ecosystem. It can be your direct consumers. So when you said initially you, you did the logistics, so let's just say a trade show. Um, would you be working with a, a company that designed the booth and working with um, the the client and, and you'd be managing the getting it there and, and putting it up? And that's, is that what? So originally from the logistics standpoint, it would be, we would be working with a client and they, they want, they have, they have purchased um, and maybe we help them. Uh, but they purchased a, a square footage on the trade show floor. Mm-hmm. And then from there, from a logistical standpoint, we would be working with either the um, fabrication house that they were, that either they 
where the um, trade show booth was stored or whether it was being built. Um, we then um, filled out all the paperwork with the show organizer. So when does stuff need to be shipped? Um, uh, you know, how, what carpet, what electrical, all that sort of stuff. So we would do all that pre-planning. And then we would send a representative on site that was standing there in that booth when um, when everything was delivered, made sure that the electrical drops were in, made sure that the carpet was what it was the color it should be, and then set everything up and really got it prepared for the uh, client employees to right. then come and execute the event. They, they execute the, uh, the event or the trade show. And then, um, and then we pack everything up, fill out all of the drayage information, and it either gets shipped back to the fabrication house or shipped on to the next event. Sure. So we did all of those steps. So you were doing what I might call the boring stuff that, that needs to be done. Um, Correct. But no one else wants to do. Yes, yes. And then did you get into the more creative side of it all before the acquisition and, and you acquiring other companies? Or was that something that happened afterwards? We actually, we actually started to, let's say, step away from the boring stuff prior to acquisition. And, and strategically, we understood that we needed to go farther up the food chain to have conversations farther up that food chain for our business to grow. And so from the logistics standpoint, we were at the delivery stage and we wanted to go farther up. And so, um, and so we actually started with production was, the, was the, the, the first service that we brought on. And we started that by bringing an executive producer um, on staff, and then we would um, contract out to different production agencies. From there, we actually just started to hire those roles we were contracting out. We have never been in the business of owning equipment, nor will we ever own equipment. We have fabulous partners that that is what they do is own equipment. But what we do have on staff and we did start to acquire were um, audio engineers, lighting designers, executive producers, technical directors, those types of, of roles that allowed us to uh, bring full production in. From there, we uh, got ourselves settled and we hired a chief creative officer. And from, from that individual, they began to build out a studio and say, here are the, here are the roles you're going to need. Uh, uh, you're going to need a creative director. You're going to need a, a writer, designers, that sort of stuff. And so we had started to really actually flesh out ourselves as an agency, going from a logistics company even um, to mentally with our employees to an agency. And, and then uh, beginning in, in um, really beginning in 2017 is when we started acquiring the companies. We had got ourselves to a point of stability. We had some of the, we had most of the roles that we wanted internally. And now we were ready to go buy smaller agencies uh, to flush out who we were. So I want to talk about that. But before I talk about that, I think there's two ways you seem to have grown. One is, as you said, um, going up the value chain, um, ultimately to the CMOs. And presumably that is from logistics to production, to creation, to strategy. Um, and also I know from, from, uh, from knowing you, you moved also from uh, smaller companies through to much larger multinational and global companies. Did those two things happen at the same time or, or how did that all happen? Some was, some was by luck and someone, some was by strategy. And I, I'm going to guess every business can say that. Mm -hmm. We had fantastic luck early on that uh, one of our first clients was Intel. Hmm. And uh, and they were also growing and, and, and changing their business and going out to different constituents. 
And so we were able to really cut our teeth on the trade shows, on the channel marketing, on the smaller events, but begin to grow with them. And the second break that we got was Cisco. Wow. And Cisco and signing Cisco systems, that's what they were called originally, mm. in 1997. Mm. And we started to do their trade, their, uh, excuse me, their road shows for them. And so we would mm. have simultaneous 20 city road shows, two or three at a time going. Mm. And um, those two names allowed us then to step back and say, okay, actually, now let's go hunt mm -hmm. for some bigger companies. Right. And uh, the low hanging fruit for us has always been technology because of that start. Mm -hmm. And, and then, uh, you know, as we went out and gained more technology clients and then built out an account management team, right? So as the company grew, uh, grew we began to build out more functions internally. And uh, as the account management team grew, we then had, you know, our top 50, our top 25, our top 10 that we were now uh, seeking to sell into. Right. And right. then strategically, as we began the acquisitions, most of the agencies that we purchased, they were smaller agencies that had a large concentration of their business with one or two clients, lots of others, but one large concentration. And by purchasing those agencies, we were able to then acquire that client. Hmm. So it became a business strategy. Right. So when you went on your acquisition kind of tear, you, you were looking for acquiring clients or acquiring uh, skill sets that you didn't have internally or both or was it a geographical spread or some of it all of it uh, a little bit of all of that our our first acquisition was actually in Seattle and it was uh, an agency that had been around for a long time they had they had a great reputation and they did a tremendous amount of work for Microsoft and other Seattle um, tech companies Mm -hmm. And and that really gave us a strong foray into into that client. And then our second acquisition was actually in Brooklyn. So we went across the coast. We needed uh, we needed an East Coast presence. We were very West Coast uh, in in our focus, specifically because of tech and because now the two offices in Seattle and Portland. So the Brooklyn office, uh, the Brooklyn acquisition gave us an East Coast office. And um, they were working with the consumer side of Google and YouTube. Mm. And that allowed us, uh, they're a super creative agency, and that allowed us a foray into more consumer type business. And then the uh, additional uh, acquisitions, one was in London. So we needed a beachhead into EMEA. We knew that uh, they were a, a a small, I think there were only seven uh, employees or nine employees when, when uh, we acquired them, but they had a very strong uh, client base. It was actually quite diverse. Mm -hmm. So the, the London Metal Exchange to Microsoft to GE. So they gave us, right. uh, 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 took us out of the concentration again of tech and allowed us a, a, a footing into EMEA, strong footing into EMEA. So there was different reasons why we did this. Right. So um, presumably working with these bigger companies, you did have to at least do events globally fairly early on, did you? Yes. At the point that we started our acquisitions, I would say by the time we hit, I'm going to say 2016, 2015, 30% of our events were outside of the U.S. Mm -hmm. We were just using... Uh, very strong partners. And that's, that's how we sold. We were always transparent. We were always transparent. And in fact, we had a client um, that said to us, if I have an agency that sits across the table from me and tells me they handle everything without partners, I instinctively know they're not telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Because I know you can't get it done without a good partner in region. Sure. And so we were always very transparent about that. 
and and our pitch was 30% of our business is outside of the US and and we work with very well vetted partners. Mm-hmm. So let's fast forward to say the end of 2019. So at that point you've got you've made seven acquisitions. How much of your business was outside the US then? Was it still 30% or did it grown more than that? It had grown to more than that, but but not by much more, not by much more. We had made the acquisition of the London agency in September of 2019. So I'm going to say by the time we hit that, maybe we were at 35, but not not much, not much greater than that. Mm -hmm. But by this time, you were a a force in the industry. You you were Mm -hmm. a, a big company. You'd moved up the food chain. You got involved in strategic decisions with big global clients. Um, presumably, the further up the chain you can go and the more creative you can be, the more differentiated you can be. Would that be true or not? It's absolutely too true, Graham, because you're, you, if you are going farther up the value chain, especially as an agency, you are having different levels of conversation. So mm-hmm. you are understanding your client's business in, in a completely different way. And the more you understand about their business, the more you can take the um, offerings that you have and help them reach their initiatives, help them reach their goals. And so those conversations allowed us to be viewed differently. Our valuation as a partner rose because we were understanding exactly why they were having uh, this enormous consumer event or enormous um, uh, user conference and what they needed to get out of it. And it's Mm -hmm. not, you know, the, the number of leads or the, the amount of business closed or, um, it needs to be net zero in costs. So sponsorship needs to be, you know, brought to the forefront and really well thought out. And how are we handling that? So that's vastly different than we need a hundred square thousand, you know, we need a hundred thousand square feet and we need, you know, all six foot tables or whatever. I mean, we were, we had moved well beyond uh, the logistics for table stakes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So you know, I think back a year now, um, and I'd just been to CES. I was just about to go to ISE in Amsterdam, and ISE was the last trade show I went to. I haven't been to one since. Um, so as I mentioned in the introduction, the events industry in in the AV world, let's say, um, has been the hardest hit. There's been no harder hit market segment Um how did it affect you? I can't imagine it was pretty. It was devastating. It was devastating. Was and it, sudden? it was. It was sudden. It was, Graham. I my last flight was March 13th. About the same time as my last flight, yeah. Yep. Yep, March 13th. And what we what we saw was uh, as more information came to light across the world and more understanding of what actually was happening with this pandemic, we started to have events cancel. It was like a domino. We actually had to have uh, someone on staff, a woman that I've worked with for 20 years who knew our industry. We brought her and said, you need to manage all of the cancellations and the cancellation fees. We needed to understand what work was done to the point of cancellation. We had to bring our sourcing agents. So we book all of our venues um, for our clients. And we had a, a very uh, robust and well-known, well-respected sourcing team. We had to bring them together with our legal and say, okay, what do we need to understand? What do we need to protect? How do we manage the relationships with these venues? How do we manage the relationships with the clients? And being really mindful of this. 
And so we had to sort of regroup very quickly just inside to almost um, address a different type of business. Mm -hmm. And then on the back side of that, we unfortunately had too many employees for the revenue that we had coming in. Mm -hmm. So usually in a, in a calendar year, we build one budget and we build it in November, finalized in December. And then we um, track to that budget. We forecast all through the year, but we track to that budget. In 2020, we actually rebudgeted, I believe, four times. And so we needed to look at how do we how do we retain as many of the employees as we can for, for as long as we can? And so we managed our um, expenses because we're an agency. The, the majority of all of our expenses are, are people. And we managed our expenses through reduction of salaries to begin with. And it was on a, it was on a scale. So the, those at a lower end salary, maybe they were two and a half to three percent affected. Those at the top scale were fifteen percent. So we immediately managed salaries, and then we went into furloughs, and uh, then we ended up with we had to do layoffs. Mm -hmm. Had to do layoffs. So, um, so it sounds like the first part of the pandemic was spent in like crisis management you could say mm. so a couple of questions there um the first question is how did the the people you were canceling events at handle it were they understanding were they, like the venues the people that were building booths for you the you know all of the the, the travel the the all of the things you had to pull back on were people by and large understanding and, and allowed you to cancel? Was it some and some? Were, you know, what, what was your experience there? I will have to say, and, and I would say this across the board, Graham, that this pandemic and this crisis specifically in the events industry brought out a level of grace in individuals that almost makes me emotional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm from the venues to the airlines, you know, to the, the fabrication houses, you know, everyone was impacted and we were really able to work with them. And I, I think, you know, as the pandemic continued, there were some uh, on the venue level, just trying to, you know, well, how about we rebook in six months? How about, you know, I mean, everybody is trying to manage their revenue, their income. And we were really conscientious about that. To that team, I said, we will need these relationships when everything starts back up. That has to be understood. To me, the venues, the hotels, they have been, they were the most uh, devastated. And, and, you know, we need to, we need to be thoughtful and caring work through as much as we can, but we need to remember that we all need to work together at the end of this. This isn't the end of it, right? Uh, this isn't the end of these relationships. So, um, you know, that was the first phase. How long did that last? And then what happened after that? I would say we were in that phase from probably mid-March through May, June. Okay. It's probably four or five months. And then, um, you know, presumably at that stage, then companies have to say, well, we've got to launch products. We've got to, you know, do some stuff. So, so when, and, and how quickly did the focus change to how can we like reinvent what we do? It actually, it happened pretty quickly with clients because they knew that they had events that were booked that were in real life and they needed to pivot to virtual. And so uh, we had individuals in the agency, we had been growing so quickly and hiring so quickly. So we hired a person a day, the first 90 days of 2020. I mean, we right. were still hiring when everything went down, right? So we, we had yep. people coming on, right? And in, because we we're at such a growth spurt, a lot of the individuals that we were hiring had experience in other areas. They weren't just, uh, just in the the um, silo of events. 
So they had run digital agencies, they had worked. So we were very fortunate. And what we did is we, we had people brush off old skills or brought people to the forefront if this is what they had done in the past and kind of reconfigured teams to be able to sit down with our clients and because we weren't, we, we had to um, get ourselves straight. We had to uh, sit down with our clients and say, these are the options. We had to understand the platforms that were out there. And then we had to understand how do you utilize those platforms to engage, to engage and get your message across. So uh, before we started, we were chatting and you said that uh, one of the things you'd noticed was that clients were paralyzed. Mm. And when you started talking to clients about, about you know, how they might achieve some of the same things in different ways, how much of that conversation was driven by you and how much was driven by them in terms of did they come to you and say, we're thinking of a virtual launch, we might do it this way. Or did they come to you and say, have you any idea how we can launch this thing? It, it was the latter. Here's, you know, we're, we're thinking of this and then we would step into the council because what I believe the whole industry did was attempted to apply in-person event strategies to a virtual uh, event and you actually can't in some ways. Mm -hmm. So this is what we say behind, you know, this is what we say internally. Hey, in a live event, if somebody shows up and they need to get into the keynote after it started and they didn't sign up for it, you can just put a sticker on their badge and they can go in. They can open the keynote doors and go in. For a virtual event, if they don't have the right login, the right information, they didn't sign up for the right thing, the keynote doors are virtually locked to them. So, so some of the stuff that you can fix and zhuzh on a, on a live event, mm -hmm. you do not have any of that um, grace with a virtual event. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we had to kind of reconfigure their thinking. Okay, yep. And how, you know, when you said that clients were paralyzed, you know, how, what did that look like to you? They were just stuck without being able to make any decisions or? Yes. And I, we're, we're still seeing it, right? So now they're, they are heading out of uh, the deepest part of the pandemic. How do we go to market now? When do we have live event, uh, you know, an, an in-person event? What? key components of it should be uh, virtual. A number of our clients, it's interesting, a number of our clients are being asked to go back to demand gen. So these are individuals that have moved through their careers and they did demand gen 10 years ago. And they are being asked by sales because everything sort of flowed down to really go into demand gen phase. And they're saying, and I have people that are employed for me that they were they were brought on to create experiences, not figure out demand. They're trying to figure out what does the portfolio of events look like. We have a client right now. We just pitched on Friday. They uh, went out to their two main partners and they paid for us to come and give them ideations of mm -hmm. their what their event portfolio should look like in 2021 and beyond. Mm -hmm. And they went to their two main partners and they said, straight up, doesn't matter what, which, uh, which uh, um, ideas we choose, we will choose which agency works on it. But they paid us to come to the table and actually they are paying us for a phase two of it. So they are just in need of information. What are the ideas? What there's, you know, what should we do? There's a, they're a little bit stuck and, and they need us as they should, as their partners to go out and say, here's how you can look at three different types of things. Here's the engagement. Here's the engagement at a small level. Here's the engagement at, uh, at a hybrid, right? Hybrid is going to be, you know, pivot was overused uh, in 2020 and hybrid's going to be exhausted in 2021. Um, and so uh, 
those are the types of things that, that we are seeing clients need and ask for. There's two elements to, to what you were doing, what you said at the beginning. Um, one was external events and things, but the other one was internal events. And um, we've done a series before on the future of the workplace. And we've talked to a lot of people about how companies are coping with everyone working from home. And a lot of companies, my own included, have been really impressed by how productive people can be at home. But one of the things, particularly as the pandemic goes on and on, that is a challenge is how creative people can be at home. So you can, you know, if you had a big to-do list going into this, you can knock that out pretty quickly and get the projects that are already in progress through to completion pretty well. But the new, you know, the ideation, the new, the spontaneity, the creativity, even internally is a real challenge for a lot of companies. And I know that you facilitate a lot of events that are around team building and around um, the social interaction. Have, have you been called upon to, to help companies with that aspect of their life? Yes, and I think the way we have, have been engaged is a couple different ways. So first, because we were an event agency, an experiential agency, we had a promotional products department. And what we did is we began to put some ideas around boxes that could be sent to the home. Mm -hmm. And those boxes were either, you know, you, uh, uh, you find yourself working at home, here's some things from the HR department, or here's some things from your management department to just make it easier or to have fun, mm -hmm. to have fun. So they could have had socks or things, you know, uh, uh, you know, those clapping things. So when you're on calls and you can, you can, you know, um, uh, acknowledge great things that are happening with the team. So we helped clients look at how do you engage your team that is at home mm -hmm. and what are ways to do that? What are ways to acknowledge how difficult it is? And, and from there it was, what is working with our team, right? I mean, we had a we have a team of of uh, over 300 people. What is actually working with our team? What is engaging them? How are they being creative? What are the ideas and and bringing some of that stuff to the table? Right. Every Friday, you got to have a different background, and you had to have made it yourself. Or, you know, we did a scavenger hunt. We did a scavenger hunt across the whole company, and you could do. Um, uh, there were, you know. 75 things. So we made it very easy, right? There were 75 things. Um, you loaded it onto our, um, what we call main stage, which is, which is our, um, uh, internal website and our intranet and, and then the whole company voted. So we did different things like that, that would allow for creativity to show itself in different ways mm -hmm. for individuals. You know, when this all shut down, I went to one, the first virtual conference, if you like, I went to a virtual, yeah, it was a virtual conference, was actually pretty good. And I'm not sure whether that's just because I was really needing that interaction or whether it actually was pretty good. I think it was actually pretty good. But then I went to a number of others, and a lot of them were really unsatisfying. Um I went to a couple of virtual trade shows and they had like trade show booths, if you like, but they were, they were not at all well fleshed out. It was mainly some descriptions about the product. Maybe you could link to a couple of videos or something. Um, how have you found ways to be able to innovate in that space? So you have your platform in general, the virtual platform that that let's say the content is living mm -hmm. on. And then there are um, and, and more and more are coming online, all sorts of additional tools that help with some of that engagement. First thing we realized and we had to actually educate our clients on virtual ain't cheap. So I think there was this thought that, oh my gosh, it's going to be so much cheaper. We don't have, we don't have to feed people. We don't have to, but a very good virtual event takes a lot of production mm -hmm. and a lot of recordings and a lot of cleanup. 
And so they are, they are not inexpensive. This isn't an inexpensive version of an in-person event. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the best feedback that we have gotten is from the events where, where the production side of it, the sound, the staging, the lighting on some of the records are well thought out. And, you know, working with, with um, sponsors and having to think in terms of a commercial, mm-hmm. right? And how do you take, you know, these, these events are, we, we do an event every year uh, for anitaboard.org. And it is called Grace Hopper Celebration. It's the largest uh, women in technology conference in the world. And this conference, because it's a nonprofit, is run by sponsorship only. Mm-hmm. And so they really had to figure out how do they help their sponsors get their message out without a trade show. And they, and they desperately need that, that income as, a, as an association, right? Mm-hmm. Nonprofit. So really working with them to working with those sponsors on identifying where in the show they come on and then taking a look at the, at the show and it's actually a broadcast and, and being able to look at it like a broadcast. So some parts of it are um, pre-record, some parts of it are live, some parts of it are um, dancers, uh, um, distanced appropriately apart on the stage, some parts, right? And so really having to start with a client to say, let's let's look at this more as a live broadcast than this in-person event that you're stuffing into a virtual uh, container. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the music scene, um, it's been interesting to see how artists have got through this. So at the beginning, you had a lot of artists who would host like Facebook live sessions in their front rooms or something with an acoustic guitar and play a few songs for their fans, both to keep their fan spirits up and also to, to help themselves not get you know driven crazy. And there are a couple of like global events. And it's been interesting as the pandemic's gone on, people have been, artists have been, reimagining the way that, that gigs can be. And and the best example that I've seen so far is uh, Billie Eilish, who did an amazing event that, that you paid for, I think it was 30 bucks. Um, but it was a, it was a concert, but it used um, XR. So it had LED uh, tech technology behind her, but it also had AR um, around her. And it kind of was, basically was a new form of art. It was something she could not have done live or it had been extremely difficult to do live. Um, And it was not a conventional kind of music video. It was something not done before. And I'm wondering whether people have found that in in the events industry and launches and things, whether there's been this emergence of something that, that, really hadn't been done before. I don't know if I can come up with something specific, but but our studios very much use the LED walls, working with presenters that are not used to not having an audience and, and utilizing camera um, operators that are used to doing um, more TV. So, but, but that may be the only, no, nothing that I can think of that is completely different, more just the approach has been different in working with our clients. Yeah. So are there any um, real shiny examples of product launch, virtual product launches that maybe uh, listeners can go to on YouTube that you think of, of people that have done it really well? Well, I mean, Apple, it wasn't a lot. Well, yes, Apple's developer conference. I mean, the, it was it, it was just 
beautiful. We didn't, I'd love to say we did it. We didn't do it. <laughs> Whoever did it did a very good job. Good on them. Um, but Apple's developer conference, uh, okay. the way that it was, um, the way that they went from, uh, again, both the stage to um, in their offices, right? To uh, the products themselves and how they had to reimagine how some of that um uh, would come across. I think they did. I think it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Right. And also, I think you you actually covered it slightly in in a previous answer. But I'm interested in knowing how the executives who are used to doing, um, you know, real product launches or being on on a trade show booth and talking to one on one, reacted to becoming film stars. If you if you like. Uh, we did a, uh, we worked with Herbalife early on and had a beautiful uh, um, surround stage built. And I remember the the director on, so we had a director, right? Mm -hmm. And not just an executive producer, but we had a director. And, and, and I remember the director saying, thank God, this guy is a good speaker, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> so you really see the ones that have either had the training or have an, have a natural ability to understand and follow the camera and look in the camera. So there's a lot more very direct training with the executives. And I really have to, to give it up to the executives. It's tough. It's tough to keep your energy up in an empty room. And they have they have really stepped up to the challenge. We are we are doing a three week event right now for a company called Cytiva. They are actually it's it's their training, mm -hmm. right? So they are having to train on their their new products. They started first in Asia, then U.S. and Canada, and then the third week will be in EMEA. And those executives, that CEO and those executives, they we we worked with them to. Um, do everything, produce everything in real time, in region time. So that CEO stepped onto the stage at 2.30 a.m. Right. The entire uh, event, we had a team in Sing Singapore and a team in Switzerland and a team in London. And um, that those executives did um, all regional time. Hmm. So... I mean, you know, you got to give it to them. They they are understanding that they need to meet their employees where they are. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, and it's also interesting that, you know, I've been thinking about with, with artists doing gigs without an audience or even when I watch sports and sports people, you know, playing football or, or American football or whatever it is uh, without an audience, that must be tough because you're so dependent on those those people. There was something you said earlier before we started that I just want to dig into a little bit about that you feel that in some cases, virtual events encourage more intimacy than, than actual events. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yep, yep. Uh, this comes from really our own experience at, at Opus. Annually, I'll start with the two events that I talked about. Annually at the agency, we uh, honor anniversaries. We call them a 10-year lunch. And we honor individuals that have hit milestones 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And um, normally that's held in a hotel uh, restaurant or, or room or rooftop. And there's lunch and alcohol and all sorts of things. And we couldn't do that this year. And we were really worried about it. And at the end of it, we actually felt it was more intimate the way that it was done virtually because you didn't have the ambient noise of the restaurant or the room. And you didn't have waiters coming in and out and putting plates down or talking to somebody next to you or ordering another drink. If I was talking about Graham and Graham had been with the agency for 10 years and I am explaining exactly the things that that are within this agency that he has touched, everyone is listening to all the great things about Graham. And and so it was a really it was really intimate, really intimate. And then just last Thursday, we have an annual company meeting 
And just last Thursday, we had our, our connect, our annual company meeting. And we have had multiple people, again, doing it virtually. Uh, we had a studio in Portland. We had uh, all social distance. We had a, a you know, um, health committee person there making sure everybody had their masks on and everything. And uh, we have had multiple people say this was their favorite. Hmm. This was their favorite because a the concentration and quietly being able to listen to the updates given by each executive. Um, there was we had a live Q and A, but pre-recorded sessions, and then we utilized different technology to go into breakouts where individuals really connected with people that. If we all flew into Portland or Seattle or Brooklyn, which we've done in the past, we've flown all employees into someplace, I'm just naturally going to stick with the people I work with every day. But sure. going into these forced breakouts, they, the employees are saying, God, I talked to people I never would have talked, at, talked to at a live event mm -hmm. and learned and met people in the agency I probably never would have because we work on different coasts or we work on different clients or something like that. We've gotten great rave reviews for it. Interesting. So that brings us right up to date. And that, that kind of leads into the final part of what I wanted to talk to you about. So we're now at the beginning of February 2021. And we have a vaccine. Uh, you know, we have some hope that, that, as you said earlier, the deepest part of this might might be behind us, certainly hope. Um, so how is the industry feeling now? Are people starting to to think about moving out of this, booking real in-person events? And allied to that, what do you think the industry is going to take out of the last year and use going forward? We are beginning to see clients book space to have uh, in-person events, we are. Um, they are hedging it though, they're hedging it, right? They're saying, we think we're gonna do it in September, but um, internally, there are a couple different perspectives that we have as an agency. First of all, we're talking with our clients and we're talking with our colleagues, just like you are right now in the agency or in, in the industry all the time. We feel we're about nine months out, seven right. to nine months out mm -hmm. from, from a true in-person event. Mm -hmm. Be great if it was before, believe me, but sure. we're, we're, we, we're probably about nine months out. Mm -hmm. And uh, we feel that they will start small mm -hmm. and then they will ramp up quite quickly. So mm -hmm. we have an agency are feeling as though we need to be prepared for that. And there's a couple different things that will trigger that. Number one, it is certainly the vaccinations, right? And, and when the population is vaccinated and the clients feel that whatever precautions they have to take don't affect the live event. Mm -hmm. Because that, that's mm -hmm. been a lot of a consideration. Yep. Beyond the safety, it's it's how does it actually affect an in-person event? You know, we do like a spoken wheel. We talk when we're strategizing with our clients, our hub and spoke. I apologize, hub and spoke. Do you have a hub event, and then do you have satellite spoke hybrid events? How mm -hmm. how are we going to actually uh, move into this? And then what will be the things that we take away? And we feel it will be. The hub and spoke that will probably uh, be something that goes into the future, mm -hmm. and and it's and it's strategically understanding what parts of an event and experience should be in person, and what parts of the event are actually better virtual. And so therefore having a hybrid event, because we feel that there are, there are, you know, are the trainings actually better virtually because you can go back and re-record and look at it and other aspects of the event actually better in person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I was talking to someone recently about my experiences at, at the TED conference and, um, 
there's a main TED conference and a thing called TED Active, which is like a, a hybrid event. It's in a physically different place at the same time, same week. And you watch the talks from the main place on screen. And then there are some some subsidiary events, you know, some, some unique events to TED Active, including some unique talks. And it was interesting. It really, I, I had a different experience to the person I was talking to, both of whom, you know, we've been to multiple TED Actives. And uh, I don't like them because I don't like watching TV for a week, even in a comfortable beanbag or whatever it is. Um, but the, the other person, James, really got a lot more out of it. Uh, and and certainly it has a different vibe. There's certainly a different. If if I look at the TED conference, the 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 big the main one, what's called Big TED, is is it very expensive to get into, very difficult to get into, has a kind of elitist feel. Um, whereas TED Active, which is kind of unofficially known as Party TED, is kind of younger people coming up. Um, and it has a very different energy. So I can certainly see, even though I ended up gravitating to Big Ted in the end, um, I can certainly see the appeal of Ted Active because it's not going to take itself quite as seriously. Um, and also you you get to see the people that are making it rather than the people that have made it. Um, and that's a, that's a different um, dynamic. Yeah. So it would be really interesting to see how hybrid events you know kind of come in and how in the hybrid event you're not made to feel like a second class citizen to the to the hub event um any yeah. any feelings about any of that two two thoughts on that um the first is prior to 2020 and the pandemic the the buzzwords with experiential and events was um uh give people content where they want to uh where they want to take it in people were already uh getting away from the everyone has to be in the keynote in order to hear exactly when the launch is right and some really good conferences had actually kicked that out uh and those ideas down the road a couple of years before this right hp's discovered it a beautiful job the idea of bean bags and you could actually sit and listen to the keynote or you could be in the keynote. So again, consuming the content where you want or being in your hotel room. And and people got away from the the feeling of everybody has to be in the room, right? So I think we were already started down that path. And I think that um, virtual just sort of severed the, uh, the uh, any other option. And, mm -hmm. and now you really were consuming con content wherever you were. But the second part of that, and this is this has been my sort of observation and soapbox since the pandemic started, and that is, for years we said content is king. Content is king. We've been touting that for years. But at an in-person event, you can you can kind of shuck and jive around poor content because you've got the DJ. That's in between the the um, speakers, and you've got, you know, the Harley Run, or you've got, you know, <laughs> the big party or whatever. So I I think you could mask mm -hmm. poor content, even right. though that was a big buzzword. When virtual hit, you could not mask poor mm -hmm. content, and so I believe that content is taking its actual rightful maturation. Mm -hmm. to being exactly what it's supposed to be. That's and that will not change when you when we go back into in-person with a portion of hybrid. That's my soapbox I've said for a while. Excellent. Yeah, that's, that's a really good thought. I hadn't really thought about it, but it makes a, a lot of sense. So that's one thing that we're going to take out of this year and move forward stronger. Are there other things that you think this year has taught us that will make events in one year, two years, three years better than they would have been if we hadn't been through this? I think from the consumer side, so when I say consumer, I'm saying those who attend, I think they'll be thoughtful. 
more thoughtful. I think we were getting on planes to go see, to go to anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that we will be more thoughtful about mm-hmm. what events we go to. I think from a client side, it'll take years to get back to the, the bigger is better. The bigger is better, right? Think mm-hmm. of how um, Dreamforce touts how many people they have and Oracle World touts how many people they have and CES touts how many people they have. I think it'll take a while before you're saying, hey, come on down. We've got 30,000 people you can yeah. run along against, you know? So I think that'll take a couple of years. Um, I think that uh, the, I think there'll be a different sophistication around, um, um, and we need to all be understand this in, in the events industry, there'll be a different sophistication around contracting mm-hmm. and around force majeure and around mm-hmm. cancellations. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of business, um, I don't know if I want to say savvy, but a change in how partners do business, right? Yeah. Fabrication houses, that had tons and tons of that had that had pre-purchased all sorts of stuff ahead of time, waiting for work. The um, most, especially the um, I believe the gear houses, the audiovisual gear houses. Mm-hmm. They uh, there wasn't in the industry. You didn't normally have cancellation fees for not pulling that camera off the shelf, for not pulling mm-hmm. that projector off the shelf, right? Yeah. Uh, they that that these these um really really high end gear houses they loaded their trucks and then they threw in six other things that just in case. I believe some of that will change in how the contracting and how the cancellation the, the clauses are written. I think there's going to wow. be a certification there wasn't. That's that's a really good ending thought and and so certainly for for the AV industry that that we serve that's that's food for thought i also like the quality not quantity message and the you know looking at your impact on the earth as well by not flying to every single event you could possibly go to everywhere do you have any last thoughts before we finish up i i think that the events industry is a vital and dynamic industry and i have no doubt that uh, we will we will get back to where we were and that we will be strong. I, I, I have no doubt. And I think that individuals within um, the event industry, we've actually just added more tools to our toolbox. I think that we, the executive producers will be deeper thinkers. Mm-hmm. The project management individuals will uh, take their sights even farther. The venues will understand the things that need to comfort individuals. I, I think it's a vital industry, and I actually think we'll, it'll take a while, but we'll come out of this and, and actually be smarter and savvier and more sophisticated. Yeah, I agree. There's, there's two things I'd like to, to put in here. One is kind of from my audio friends that have been, you know, that are usually out doing tours and things. It's like, give us the vaccine rollout. We can just get it sorted. (laughs) And the second thing is, you know, this contention that what will get people out again is compelling experiences. That's what you guys do. That's, that's your world. So, you know, my belief is that, yeah, the, the, the skill set that the events industry has is more vital now than ever. And, and as we come out of this and value the stuff that we can't get in our home, that you have to go out to, to, to see, yeah. that's your domain. Yep. So see thanks so much, so much, Dina. How do people get in contact with you and with Opus Agency? What's the best yes. way? Yes, thank you. Uh, my direct email, reach out to me. Love to, love to talk. Happy to uh, chat is Dina, D-E-N-A dot Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, at opusagency.com. And then our website is opusagency.com. So thanks so much, Dina, for your time. It's great, as always, to chat to you. And thanks for all of your time, listeners. Thank you very much for coming and listening. Hopefully, it's been instructive and fun and entertaining. Please leave your comments on whatever 
podcast platform you're listening on. Leave your ratings, leave your thoughts about what you liked, what you didn't like, who we should have on in future. And once again, thanks so much for listening to another episode of Surroundscapes and come back and listen to more.